So let's turn our attention beginning to verse number 12 this evening. We are, I am going to spend a few weeks on this. My intention is primarily to talk to us about the nature of a church, uh, which of course involves a pastor, but is so much more than a pastor. And so we will look at what a church is and what a church does. But I certainly intend, while talking about myself is not, at least I hope, something I do not normally do, uh, in the now almost 40 years that I have been doing this, um, I have changed my views on many things. And so... I, I want to talk to us a little bit about that, and that's actually what my intention this evening is. Uh, one of the challenges always of preaching is the, the pastor kind of knows all that he is thinking and all that he wants to get done, and the congregation kind of comes into the middle of it and hears excerpts. So uh, <clears throat> my apologies for that. Verse number 12 of Psalm 55. <clears throat> for it was not an enemy that reproached me then I could have borne it neither was it he that hated me that I that did magnify himself against me then I would have hid myself from him but it was thou a man mine equal my guide mine acquaintance we took sweet counsel together and walked unto the house of God in company let death seize upon them and let them go down quick into hell for wickedness is in their dwellings and among them As for me, I will call upon God, and the Lord shall save me. Evening and morning and at noon will I pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. He hath delivered my soul in peace from the battle that was against me, for there were many with me. God shall hear and afflict them, even he that abideth of old, Selah. Because they have no changes, therefore they fear not God. He hath put forth his hands against such as be at peace with him. He hath broken his covenant. The words of his mouth were smoother than butter, but war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet were they drawn swords. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. But thou, O God, shall bring them down into the pit of destruction. Bloody and deceitful men shall not live out half their days, but I will trust. In thee, and let's let's pray tonight, Father. All flesh is grass, but you abide forever. You are eternal, self-existing, and the church has promised perpetuity. And the death of its members will be no impediment to its existence. Bless Westwood Heights, please. <clears throat> Bless us today and in the future, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I mentioned, I, I wanted to turn our attention for a few weeks, not a lot of time, but to the inevitable transition. Um, I am still operating within my kind of sort of time frame, and I'm deliberately vague, not, not to be deceptive to you, but for other reasons. But somewhere around the year 2027, in 2027, I will turn 70, and that's 
just kind of a number. Obviously, the Lord has some opinion. I, <clears throat> I heard somebody say recently that people don't really remember how a pastor came to a church, but they will never forget how he left. <clears throat> and so when I heard that, my first thought was, well, I hope that we leave whenever it is that we leave honorably, that we do not have to leave scandalously in the middle of the night, uh, as it were. <clears throat> um, but this is one of the reasons that I want to talk about it periodically. Uh, I've told you I talked to a pastor, a good friend. We pastored together for many years. And he told me, he said, I began to tell the church five years in advance that I was going to retire. And when I announced my retirement, they were shocked. And so... <clears throat> Um, if you are sad that, or glad, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> that was between you and the Lord, but I hope you're not shocked. Uh, I hope that's, I hope that, <clears throat> that. so anyway, to, to hasten on, uh, <clears throat> I looked at how many pages of notes that I have. You know, I have some idea at this point in time how long a message is going to last by how many notes this has. I hope you're on a pillow and a blanket. That's all that I can tell you for this evening. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> Certainly, Westwood Heights is a much different church than it was in 1984 when we came. Um, <clears throat> uh, the church had been started in 1972 um, by an eager young man who I think meant well, uh, but kind of made some financial commitments that he hoped would pan out that did not. And uh, the next pastor labored for six years. First pastor was here six years, and the Second pastor was here six years working under that debt, and we came in 1984, and the Lord very quickly gave us some new young families, and that was a great blessing. Um, uh, Michelle Hutton and Eric were already here. They had come that summer previous, and uh, I was trying to think sitting on the platform. Roger and Jane Canock were here, and Jim and Marlene Page were already here when I got here. I can't, I don't know that there's anybody else that was here prior uh, to us coming. Um, and so we've, we, you know, there, you know, and, and you, you know, I'm not, I don't want to get into all the names because I'm just kind of reluctant with the live stream and the recording to start throwing around people's names, but <clears throat> we kind of grew up together. It was a great blessing for us to be able to do that. And one of the things that I've wondered when I talk about my own retirement or whatever it, it's going to be is that as the Lord has now given us a number of young families, if you would not be benefited by a senior pastor, or in our case, the only pastor, who is of a younger generation with whom you can grow up, that would, that's one of the things that I think about. <clears throat> I am going to prepare and present on a Wednesday night uh, for those that are here, uh, and then make known on a Sunday for the folks that may not hear then, and, uh, <clears throat> but have, would have any interest, a brief questionnaire. Uh, pertaining to some of those things. It's just very simple, but I'm kind of curious. And, and part of that has to go with something that we'll turn our attention to over the next couple of weeks, which is the importance of the local church and the, the, the place that it has in God's plan. <clears throat> now, we all know, folks, and some of you have been through this <clears throat> um, more than once, and some of you, quite honestly, have never been through this, but you don't have to think very hard to think about this, that Anytime there is any kind of a significant change in pastors, it is a potentially volatile time. Uh, no, no, 
no point in a relay race is more dangerous than the handing off of the baton. So we all know that. And, and one of the things that people are greatly apprehensive about are what that change might mean and what that change would look like. And, and the reality is that you probably will not know un, until the next pastor is in place. Just like, and this is what I really want to talk to us tonight about, and I'm sorry that it's of a rather personal nature, but it all pertains to something that has a great impact on the church, or at least potentially does. Um, when I became a pastor in 1984 at the age of 27, I had no idea the changes I would experience. I, I really, and, and, and you know, I look back now and I just think, you know, could you have been any dumber? Probably not. Um, but I just, I just thought that all of my positions were right and bedrock and solid and, and that the only thing wrong in the world was that everybody didn't see everything the way that I did. Um, so, so one of the reasons that I read this psalm was specifically to get at verse number 19, a psalm that talks about change. The storyline of the psalm, if we were going to work through it, is David's response to being betrayed and that is a betrayal that most likely comes by his good friend and trusted counselor Ahithophel during Absalom's revolt. Second Samuel 15.31, one told David saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And so David probably writes this song in light of that betrayal. It was, it was a friend that betrayed me. And one of the ways that David identifies godlessness in, is in verse number 19. Because they have no changes, therefore they fear not God. Because they never alter anything in their life. Because all that they're doing, they continue to do. Is one of the, now this is used of a sinful situation and I'm not talking about sinful changes, but there's one of the characteristics. There is, folks, a change that is bad. There is change that is bad. Psalm, or Proverbs 24, 21. My son, fear thou the Lord and the king, and meddle not with them that are given to change, for their calamity shall rise suddenly, and who knoweth the ruin of them both. And the word change here is not the same word, Hebrew word change in Psalm 55. 19. The change mentioned in Proverbs 24 actually has the idea of being folded back or being doubled. You, you kind of get the idea of why we call people two-faced or duplicitous. It comes from this kind of word here. That is the word in Proverbs 24 that is used when David changed his behavior and pretended that he was insane. And it is the word used in Proverbs 26 to describe a fool who returns to his folly, he doubles back on it and goes back to it again. It is the word translated disguise in 1 Kings 14.2 when King Jeroboam told his wife to disguise herself so that the prophet wouldn't know she was the wife of the king. So, um, so in any event, 
Here is a psalm that points out the fact that not all change is a bad, and that some change is actually a reflection of coming to a better understanding of the Lord. Um, you know, and, and again, you know, whenever you begin to talk about your own personal experiences, they're just that, very personal in nature. But I, I came from a background in which we were very regularly and frequently confronted with the truth of the book of Malachi, which is that the Lord does not change. And that kind of became part of our mantra that we were right, is that I am the Lord and I change not. And we never quite made the connection that he was the Lord, but we are not the Lord. And so uh, what is true of him is not necessarily true of us. And, and in fact, and we're going to deal with this on a Sunday morning in a few weeks, Second Corinthians 3.18 is insistent that the Spirit of the Lord is changing us. That, that part of the Spirit's work in the life of a believer is to change them into the image of God's Son. So what I wish to do this evening, what I, I think will probably be the bulk of our time together, but I, and, and I have an agenda for doing this, and you perhaps figure it out as we go, but I want to just address three changes that I have made in, with reference to pastoral ministry and Bible position over the course of 40 years. So, again, not just me standing up here telling you about me, but these things have all had some kind of bearing upon the church, and we have conversed about them or interacted with them in one way or another. And there are, there are more than three in the 40 years, but, but these three, again, have a common denominator, and I address them specifically for a reason. Turn, if you would, please, back to Deuteronomy chapter 22. And I'm going to deal with each of them relatively quickly and not completely thoroughly, but the first major change that I am aware of making as a pastor was my view on whether or not women should wear pants. When my wife and I got saved in 1978, we got saved through a church that taught regularly that women should never wear pants. And then when the Lord called us into ministry, we went to a Bible college that taught adamantly that women should never wear pants. So it wasn't like I learned it in Hammond. We already had learned it, and quite honestly, we had already kind of embraced it when we went off to Bible college. It was not any kind of an issue for us. And so when we came here in 1984, we brought that position with us. I will get to that. The, the, the textual support, right? Who in, <clears throat> if, you say, if you're sitting there going, who in their right mind would ever think that? Let me give you the two texts that are primarily used to support it. The first is the Old Testament text, Deuteronomy 22, and verse number 5. The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. So the, the argument from the text 
kind of went like this. Pants are boys' attire. And Deuteronomy 22.5 says, women can't wear boys' attire. And so women who wear boys' attire are in violation of the precept. And of course, if you have grown up, if you came out of that background, and some of you did, you were pretty much taught from the get-go that the fundamental assumption of the text is that it is about women wearing pants. And so that then became the doctrine, right? What is Deuteronomy 22.5 about? It is about women wearing pants. It was rarely taught that women not wearing pants is an application of Deuteronomy 22.5. And that not everybody would see it that way, but that's okay because sometimes we have differences in the way we view application of texts. And again, if you came from this background, you know that I'm not exaggerating when I say this, that our mentality was that women who wore pants were evil. They most certainly were not spirit-filled. And the likelihood is that they probably were not even saved. And again, I am not exaggerating in saying those things. Rarely did we ever look at Deuteronomy 22.5 and ask honest questions about the text of Scripture. Like, what is Moses talking about to the Israelites since nobody wore pants? What is the exact prohibition and to what does it extend? We never ask this question. What does, the, what does the fact that Deuteronomy 22.5 is in the law and we are not under the law bring to bear on how we think about that verse? Is it possible that an item of clothing which is not being specifically banned by the Bible. Is it possible that an item of clothing will be changed in its perception by the world over the course of hundreds of years? Is that possible? In other words, we say pants are masculine attire. Okay. Who said it and when did they say it? And I'm not arguing that it wasn't somewhat true or absolutely true. I'm just pointing out that it is very uncommon for us to hold 200 years ago or 100 years ago as the absolute benchmark by which we gauge everything. The second text that is brought to bear is 1 Timothy 2.9 which says in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. Now here we have a clear New Testament mandate. In other words, there's no 
place to ask a question, what does being out of the law do to my obligation to abide by something that is under the law? But again, the questions are, in what way is 1 Timothy 2.9 teaching that, and is that a legitimate explanation for the use of the word modest? In other words, who gets to define what the word modest means in 1 Timothy 2.9? Does Paul get to define the use of the word, or do I get to define the use of the word? And what Paul meant is completely different than what you and I would mean because for most of us, the word modest refers to decent, which is important, but it is not the way that the word was used for Paul. But again, the argument is women shouldn't wear pants because Deuteronomy 22.5 prohibits masculine attire and women shouldn't wear pants because pants are not modest. And let us be realistic, many dresses are immodest. Lots of things can be immodest or indecent that, that hardly covers all of the bases. So again, if we're going to deal with the text somewhat faithfully, we're going to have to admit that we're going to make applications from a text which is completely legitimate but an application is not a doctrine. An application is an application. It is something that we do on the basis of what the text teaches. It is not what the text teaches. And that is a critical distinction if we're going to deal honestly with the text of Scripture. Now again, those of you that have been here a long time or those of you that have had a similar background to mine, know that this is not a minor issue. And those of you that were here 30 or 40 years ago know that it was not a minor issue. I preached it every sermon. It made its way into every sermon or almost every sermon because it was really a big deal. And this is one of the things, folks, to those who hold it, it is really a big deal. Probably 10 years ago, we, we heard that someone had said that they would probably come to Westwood Heights Baptist Church, but they didn't think they could attend a church where the pastor's wife wore pants. So it's a big deal. Right? It's, and, and this is part of the issue, is that it takes on overwhelming proportions, dimensions relative to the way it is used in the text of Scripture. So I preached about it regularly. When we would have a church picnic or a church banquet, there was always the same announcement. Here's the time, here's the date, here's the place. Ladies, don't wear pants. If we needed a Sunday school teacher, it was always the same thing. We need a Sunday school teacher, but it has to be a lady that doesn't wear pants. And then, of course, over the course of time, <clears throat> as I began to study and as other factors came to bear and as I had conversations with other pastors that made me mad for raising some of the arguments I've already raised about the text of Scripture, and after much soul-searching, I ultimately then changed the position, my position, 
and I changed that position relative to the females in my family. And in the year 2000, and I only know that because I remember the event that triggered it. We took our son to Bible college. <clears throat> we were on the campus of Bible college. He was 18, going off to Bible college. This was a Bible college that I was hopeful and, and did for a number of years recommend to young people to attend. I looked around at what the young ladies were wearing, and I thought, my position is never going to be compatible with sending young people to this college. Their position was not terrible. It just was not as extreme as mine. And so, but I also realized, folks, and here's kind of the pastoral dimension. I knew full well this was part of the soul searching over the course of time. I knew full well that changing that position personally was that, that as the pastor, you don't live in a box. And it was not very long at all, it was not very long at all until almost all of the other ladies in the ministry began to follow suit and began to have conversations and husbands and wives had conversations and fathers and daughters had conversations and and this is a this is and this is a whole nother part of the subject that will come up much later folks but but this is this is a husband father decision i think in many ways more than it's a pastor church kind of decision but there were men who were leading their families that had embraced that position and held to that position. And when I changed my position, then they talked to me sometimes and there were conversations and those positions changed and others followed suit. Which means that if I am wrong, I am not only wrong, responsible for the wrong to my family, but to the wrong to the church. So... And any of the things that I might say or not say in the weeks ahead, I promise you folks that, <clears throat> that James is never far away from me. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. I also knew that putting an end to my position against women wearing pants would not be the end of the issue. I knew that there would be other conversations that would follow, like if they're not sinful, where can they be worn? And if they can be worn outside the church, why can they not be worn inside the church? And if they are not inherently sinful, why are they not inherently sin- acceptable there? And, and these are conver- this is a conversation that continues, doesn't it? This is a conversation that continues. So there is a change that I have made, folks, that in 1984, I would have never in a million years anticipated that I would change. I thought that I would take that position and hold that position and that there would never be a change in that position, but there is. Secondly, boy, am I using up my time. My second major change was my position on the use of the King James Bible. And, of course, we got saved through a very strong King James Bible church, and I went to two very strong King James Bible colleges. We did a year at Midwestern, 1979 to 1980, and we did four years in Hiles Anderson, 1980 to 1984. 
None of those, neither my home church nor the colleges that I attended ever taught that it was inspired, but they nevertheless held very strong positions on the King James Bible. Others taught that it was inspired, that the men who translated it were inspired in their own right. But just about the time that I graduated, I graduated in May of 1984, and on April 8th of 1984, Jack Hiles preached a sermon called Logic Must Prove the King James Bible in which he began to embrace an inspired King James Bible position. And everything really that you need to know about the inspired King James position is found in the title of that sermon. Logic Must Prove It. Logic Must Prove It. Logic must prove it, folks, because there is no verse in the King James Bible that would lend any credence to it whatsoever. Now, I've never held to an inspired King James position, but I have held to what I call a unique preservation of the King James position. That God had supernaturally preserved the King James Bible in a way that could not be said of any other version of the Bible. So that I would have said to you, it is not inspired, but it is preserved. And therefore, there is no other Bible to use. Two texts are primarily used to defend either the inspiration or the special preservation of the King James Bible. If you want to turn, I have a turn to one if you want. Psalm number 12 and verse number 6. This is one of the big ones. Psalm 12, 6. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. And so... Right? That's what the King James says, and that's true of the King James, and that is the evidence for its inspiration. We need a pure text, we need a reliable text, and the King James is that reliable text. So that this translation, you, don't, you, you probably don't have this one in your lap, this translation would never do. And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. Now that's the NIV translation of Psalm 12.6. And the New International Version, folks, is arguably, or maybe inarguably, one of the worst English translations that's ever been produced. But it echoes almost word for word the sentiment of King James, Psalm 12.6. The second verse that is used to support the King James Bible is Psalm 119.89, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Which is a wonderful assurance, folks, and it is a wonderful assurance, but again, if we just look at the verse without an agenda to defend a version or a translation or anything, if we just ask what the verse is teaching us, it is assuring us that the word of God is secure in heaven. It is a wonderful assurance about preservation. And every Christian needs to have a solid conviction in the preservation of God's word. 
It is not going anywhere. I got an email today from a college professor at a, I'll call it a Christian college, but I'm not sure that it is. And the email was, I'm the head of the religion department at this particular college, and I'm, I'm doing research and conducting a survey. The government is preparing a report on climate change, and they're inquiring into the input of faith-based organization on climate change. Would you take the survey? Oh, you bet I will. <clears throat> you bet I will. Right? And, and the, Bible, the Bible gives us every assurance that we need to have, folks, about what the climate is going to do and what, what the end of the world is going to look like. The word of the Lord isn't going anywhere. The preservation of God's word is a precious text. Psalm 119.89 doesn't defend the King James Bible. Now, the version issue is very big and very complicated and covers a lot of bases, and you probably know some of that. It deals with a whole lot, thousands of fragments of Bible manuscripts that have come from different places that do not always in every place agree word for word, which is part of the controversy. So it's, it's way too big to deal with the link. But I just, wanted, I just want to mention a couple of the things that have Im had an impact on my thinking. Because, right, folks, you've probably noticed this. It has become pretty commonplace for me to say to you, here's what it is in the King James. Now, those of you that have an ESV, it says this. And I do that because I know that, as far as I'm aware, there are a fair number of ESVs being held out there. And to my knowledge, that's probably the predominant version second to the King James Bible. I don't... No, some of you might have a NASB or something else, but I don't want to walk through a half a dozen translations when I talk about this. But you know that my position on this has changed. So, yes, there are differences in the bodies of texts, but if you really wanted to know what those differences are, you have a computer and the Internet, and you could find them all and look at them, and anybody could come to, to read about them and the way that they are handled. And, you know, there are people who just love nothing better than to trash talk the Westcott and Hort text and accuse them of being almost Satanist. But there are so many other bodies of manuscripts besides Westcott and Hort that deal with this. <clears throat> and some of the arguments are just, well, you know, the King James Bible is not about money. Well, it was to the guy who spent five, the equivalent of $5 million to buy the exclusive rights to print it the first time. It was about money to him. Secondly, the men who translated the King James Bible did not believe that they were writing an inspired text of Scripture. Now, it's long, folks. It's long. But you can go to the Internet and read the preface to the King James Bible. If you have a Cambridge version of the King James Bible, it's probably already there. But you could read the lengthy explanation that they gave for why they translated it and how they translated it and what they thought about the translation. And I would just point out, folks, that that matters because there's some pretty good evidence that the men who actually were writing inspired text 
Most certainly, David and Paul knew that they were writing inspired texts. They had some awareness that God was working through them when they were writing passages of Scripture. Thirdly, the argument that the King James uses a literal word-for-word translation slavishly is not without its weaknesses. In the first place, it is not the only translation to do that. And in the second place, it's just not true. It uses a word-for-word principle, but it doesn't rely upon always a word-for-word translation. And you have lots of italics where our translators have supplied words for the help of reading. And I would just point out very one very simple instance, which is the expression, God forbid, that Paul uses numerous times in the book of Romans. It is not a literal translation. A literal translation of the Greek would be, may it never be, not God forbid. But folks, for me, the biggest argument is that our New Testament writers were themselves using a translation of the Old Testament. If you're willing to do this, let me just ask you, and you can kind of figure out how it would work in your Bible, but to look at both Isaiah 28.16 and 1 Peter 2.6. And the best that you can to kind of put them together, and maybe you don't want to do it here, maybe you take two Bibles when you get home and lay them side by side, but I'm going to read them. Here is Isaiah 28.16, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. That's the operative expression. He that believeth shall not make haste. And here's Peter. 1 Peter 2.6 Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, And he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. He that believeth shall not make haste. Isaiah 28, 16. He that believeth on him shall not be confounded. 1 Peter 2, 6. What's going on there? Well, what's going on there, folks, is really very simple. In our Bibles, we are reading Isaiah 28, 16 as it's translated from the Hebrew. Peter was reading Isaiah 28.16 as it was found in the Greek. Peter was reading a Greek version of the Old Testament, not a Hebrew version of the Old Testament. The men who are writing inspired New Testament are themselves using translations of the Bible. A translation may be good, or a translation may be a bad translation, But a translation of the Bible in English is not inherently attack upon the Word of God. So I've come to the conclusion that it is the quality of the translation, not simply only the King James, that is what we are looking at. And I'm not even going to go down the road, but I'm going to make mention of this, folks, because this is something that is personally upsetting to me is the horrific way that so many of the inspired King James men actually treat the words of the text. That they are so dismissive of them. And so careless about what the, Bible, what the, what the verse is actually saying. 
but that's another story. Third issue, got to hasten on here. Third issue is music. In 40 years, I have changed my position on ladies' apparel, privately, publicly, and in the way we have implemented it in the ministry. In the 40 years I've been here, I've changed my position <clears throat> on the Bible version issue. And that, again, has not without, been without its impact. It has impacted some of the colleges that we have had in and have recommended to people. So that, again, folks, if I am wrong on this, pastors rarely have the privilege of being wrong privately. They are usually wrong publicly. Thirdly, music, specifically the use of contemporary music. And by that I mean contemporary as to the time it is written, not contemporary in the manner in which it is performed. When I went to who were then our choir directors, who were really wonderful people, and I really kind of went in innocence and suggested that the choir sing a song that Keith Getty had written. I had no idea that I had pulled the pin on a hand grenade. But I had pulled the pin on a hand grenade. And I went away from that thinking, <clears throat> did I say anything about ponytails, black t-shirts, and bass guitars? <clears throat> I don't think I did. I just said, this is a great song and we should sing it. And that issue did not die down and that conflict did not really go away, folks, until we got a hold of the hymnal that you have in the pew in front of you, which has music in it written by Keith Getty. There is some wonderful new music <clears throat> that is being written. And I'm glad for that music. And I think that we can sing it in a style that is not offensive to the Lord. And I think that, <clears throat> and I'm going to talk about this, in this over the next few couple of weeks in Sunday school at some point in time. I think that I don't know if we are willingly ignorant, and I don't mean you, but I mean the, the broader group of fundamentalists who would hold these positions, are willingly ignorant or just plain unfortunately ignorant that so much of the music that we love in our hymnals was once considered radical and contemporary and being sung to the detriment of the church. So those are three positions, folks, that over the course of 40 years I have looked at and I have altered my position on. And I mentioned those three specifically in a cluster because there is a common denominator to them, to me. And that is, when I was a very young pastor, these three issues were kind of considered the holy trinity of fundamentalism. Bad Bibles, bad music, bad standards all go together. That's what I was taught. That was what I believed. Bad Bibles, bad music, bad standards all go together. Bad standards are to not hold a position against women wearing pants. Bad Bibles is to not hold a KJV-only position. 
and bad music is to sing anything that's written contemporary or in a contemporary style. So I say this, and I say this carefully, but I want to say it pointedly. By the standards that I brought to Westwood Heights in 1984, I have become very contemporary. And I have become very compromised. And I could find people, because I went to school with them and I know them, who would be more than happy to stand up here and tell you that that is exactly what I have done. But I would pose the question to you. Are we a contemporary church? Could we find very many people in this world who would go now, Westwood Heights, now that's, they're pretty contemporary. So let me just kind of wind this down. <clears throat> and then what I'm going to do is I'm just going to take a couple of prayer requests and, but we're not going to, we, you'll have to pray privately. <clears throat> All of that to say this, folks, whoever the next pastor is and whenever the next pastor is, if he stays 40 years, he's probably going to change some things. If I could give you a little pastoral counsel along this line, the thing that we're really trying to figure out is whether he knows he wants to make major changes and is hiding that information from us so we can get a pulpit. And I know that, it's, that we really hate starting the conversation by being suspicious, but, right? Part of the vetting process, folks, is, is to find out not just where he thinks he is, but where he thinks he wants to be. But on the other hand, some of those questions he will not be able to truthfully answer until he's had some time to study issues and look at things for himself, so... He is not necessarily being unethical or disingenuous. But we're, we're trying to ascertain as much as we can ahead of time. And those are some of the questions that we would ask. I would say this, however, with me personally. The, to, to oppose something simply on the basis that it is contemporary or will lead to contemporary is an argument I have a hard time supporting. Because, <clears throat> because I've had to confront these kinds of things about contemporary issues and endeavor to look at them in light of the text of Scripture and what will the text of Scripture allow and support and make the decision on that basis and so that would be just how I <clears throat> view it. I do believe that it is possible to make changes consciously and deliberately on that basis and just, right? But I also believe, and I could be completely wrong on this, that I don't believe that most churches drift into going contemporary. I think they decide to go. That they make a conscious decision to turn direction for a purpose. Whatever, what, however you would define that, and that would probably be another separate conversation. I would point this out, folks. No ministry is ever truly static. Right? I mean, to, to, walk, to walk in the door tonight is to see Westwood Heights as it is at this moment. And if somebody walked in the door five years down the road and I'm still here, still healthy, still preaching, still doing all that I do, they might see a different church because no church is static. 
I have not been static. I have not been static. And ultimately, folks, I'm putting these kinds of things out in front of you because Westwood Heights needs to know, and it doesn't need just to come to an opinion on this. It needs to go to the scriptures, but Westwood Heights needs to know what kind of church it is. And there is an intimate relationship, I realize, between a pastor and a church. But Westwood Heights has an identity of its own, and you need... I'm hoping that that we can talk about some things that will cause you to think about how those questions should be answered. That's my goal. Okay. Do you have anything you want to add? It is 8 o'clock. Do you have anything you want to add to the prayer list? I, 